for the little while this morning, I want us to spend some time in God's Word. We're in one of my favorite places in the whole Bible, John chapter 10. So if you want to grab your Bible, head there. We're going to get to John chapter 10 uh, today. Uh, I love John 10 because this is the chapter where we get that beautiful picture of Jesus as the good shepherd. We get, this, is, this, is the, this is the chapter here where we get to see Jesus as the good shepherd, the good shepherd that is guiding our life and the good shepherd that is um, the one who gives us life. That's what I want us to see today. Jesus, yes, wants to guide your life, but he is the good shepherd who gives us life, this life of joy, a life of freedom, a life of peace, a life of contentment, right? And he gives all of those things in abundance. Jesus has come to give us abundant life. But I think so many times we miss the abundant life in Jesus. We miss that, that overflowing, extraordinary life that Jesus came to give. We get caught up in life, right? We get caught up and we miss the relationship and we miss the joy that we're intended to experience in Christ Jesus. You know, I, and, and it, for many of us, it doesn't start there. We begin in this relationship with Jesus and we want to enjoy him, but then life starts to happen and all of a sudden we find ourselves missing the point, right? Th think about how many of you love to plan a good vacation? Who loves to plan? I don't mean go on one. I like to go. I don't want to plan the thing. I want to show up and just magically cool stuff starts happening. That's me. Right? Some of you, though, you like to plan the vacation. You like to save for it, think about it, get the details, travel arrangements right. You schedule out every day. Here's the problem. I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody else in this room. But then sometimes when you get on vacation, what happens? Sometimes you end up becoming a slave to the schedule, right? How many of you have lost the joy of vacation because you were a slave to this, well, listen, we got to be up by eight. Nobody gets to sleep in breakfast in the car because we've got a 97 mile hike to an antique shop that everybody's going to hate. And then we got to, we got to hike back because we got to have a picnic lunch outside with the bugs and the mosquitoes. And then we got to go hang out at this thing that nobody cares about. And we got to stay on schedule, right? How many of you, that's you, right? You drive people crazy, by the way, would you just exhale and just enjoy your vacation? My stars, my goodness. Um, right. You get there, and you've planned, you've saved, you, you do all this work. I'll tell you where this shows up the most. Um, the, the two times that my family and I have been to Disney World, that's where it shows up the most. You want to see some of the most miserable people on planet Earth? Watch those people who are trying to force themselves to have fun. It's the most miserable, and if you're having fun, hysterical thing, you'll see uh, the entire time. But that's what happens. We become a slave to that, and I think... That often happens in the Christian life. We start out following Jesus. We start out enjoying him, but somewhere along the way, we miss the point and we miss the relationship that actually gives us joy. Now, for others of you, you have not become a Christian. And here, one of the reasons is because you see Christianity as a religion. You see it as a list of rules that you're going to follow that are actually going to rob you of life rather than a relationship with Jesus who is the giver of life. The giver of life. And over and over again, here's what we see in the Bible, especially, you know, obviously the New Testament, over and over and over again. We see 
The New Testament describes the person of Jesus as life. The New Testament describes the work of Jesus as life-giving work. And it describes connection with Jesus as finding life. I just want you to hear some of these places. In John 1, 4, it says, In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will have the light of life. In John 10, 10, where we're going to look this morning, Jesus said, I have come that you might have abundant life. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the what? And the life, right? You knew the answer to that. I'm the resurrection and the life. He said in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And John said in 1 John 5, he who has the Son has life. Life. Jesus came to give us life. Abundant, ever-restoring, full life. That's why he came. I want us to see that this morning in John chapter 10. So let me give you a little context of where we are and what's happening here in John chapter 10. In John chapter 9, a very uh, powerful thing happens, a very familiar story you'll probably remember. Uh, Jesus heals the man who was born blind. Remember this moment? He makes the mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash. The guy washes, boom, blind from birth. Now he uh, can see. And he, 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 he's, he's caused this miracle to happen, um, but he goes now, shows himself to the Pharisees, and they don't like the miracle, right? All of a sudden, they're furious because Jesus broke a rule and he healed a man on the Sabbath, and they're frustrated, and they're going, well, obviously Jesus is a sinner, and they're peppering this guy with questions about Jesus over and over again, and they refuse to accept the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, or that this miracle is real, and they're asking him so many questions. Ultimately, the blind guy goes, hey, do you guys want to be his disciples too? Like, he's, he's just so excited that he found Christ. He looks at the Pharisees and goes, man, you guys are obviously pretty interested. Y'all want to come be his disciples too? And that, that just makes the back of their head melt off, right? They're so angry, they kick him out of the synagogue, and he goes back to Jesus. Jesus looked at this now healed man, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, if I knew who that was, I would. And, and he said, I am the Son of Man. And it says, in that moment, he began to worship Jesus. And so now, what you have in John 10, out of this moment with the Pharisees and the blind man, Jesus is about to, he's about to begin to draw this clear difference between himself and and the Pharisees. He's about to draw this clear difference, and he's going to use this farming metaphor of the shepherd and sheep and a sheep pen and, and the, the thieves who want to come and steal the sheep. And he begins to use this metaphor. And the point Jesus is going to make is this. He's going to show us that he alone is the good shepherd, and he is gathering sheep to belong to him. That's what he's doing. It's the point of the verses. We're going to look, Jesus is the good shepherd, and he is gathering sheep to belong to him. And he tells us why in verse 10. John 10, verse 10. If you're there, let me hear you say, the Bible is true. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. John 10, verse 10. Here's why Jesus is gathering sheep. He says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. For I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What a beautiful picture. <laughs> what a powerful like picture. What a powerful promise and purpose. And think about it. Why did Jesus come at all? Why did Jesus come? Right? There are all kinds of answers to that question that we see in Scripture. Ultimately, we know Jesus came to save sinners. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to glorify the Father and to bring the kingdom of heaven. And in John 10, 10, Jesus affirms that purpose when he says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wants us to see that he alone is the giver of life. He alone. Life is found in him. It is found in him alone. And he contrasts himself with what he refers to as the thief. He draws this contrast between the thief and the good shepherd. Now, who is the thief? Now, we ultimately know the thief is Satan, right? It's the great enemy. But in this moment... He's also referring to uh, the religious leaders who are rejecting him and who are trying to point people to salvation and life that is found outside of Jesus. And I think this is the point he's making, and it's the first point for us to take hold of, which is this. Every path to life apart from Jesus leads to death. Every path, every path of life apart from Jesus Christ, leads to death. First part of verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Regardless of what it is offering, life independent of Jesus, listen to me, is a life that has been devised by Satan, who is the great enemy of humanity, and his intended purpose is not to give you life, but to take it. His purpose is to take life. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to kill your soul. And he wants to destroy your eternity. That's his purpose. And boy, he is crafty. He exists for one thing. To destroy your eternity. To kill the joy in your life today. To rob you of real life and to destroy your eternity. And it's been his game from the first moment. He interacts with humanity. Go all the way back to the garden, right? All the way back to Genesis. All the way back to that moment. From the very beginning, he has made big promises and failed to deliver. Remember what he told Eve. He said, if you eat this thing that is forbidden, you're going to be like God. You're going to be like God. It was a big promise, and it was a big lie. And after eating that fruit and believing that lie and trying to, Eve trying to find her own way to God, what happened? She was further from God than she'd ever been before. Why? Because that's what trying to find life outside of Jesus does. It separates us from God further and further and never brings us closer. And, and Adam went with her. And God was to be their source of life. And they fell for the great temptation and the great lie that says, life is not found in God. Life is found in me being God. And they believed the lie. If I'm the God of my own life, that's where I'll find happiness. That's where I'll find... And they believed that lie. Satan is a liar. He's a liar. 
And every path to life apart from outside of Jesus leads to death. But here's what the enemy is going to whisper to you. He's going to say things like this. God is holding you back from something good. God is withholding good things from you. If you take the path of Christ, right, he's going to take all the fun out of your life. He's going to rob you of enjoying it. But listen, that is a deception. His goal is to steal your joy and destroy your life. He wants to fill your life with sin because if he can fill your life with sin, right hot on the heels of sin is shame and guilt and defeat. Some of you are well aware of that. Ever since this moment in the garden, the enemy has been creating substitute sources of life that lead to nothing but death. What is the thief? The thief is anything that you look to as a substitute for Jesus. What is the thief? It is anything that you look to as a substitute for Jesus. Well, what are some of the lies that the thief sells? What are some of the things he's trying to, to tell us? He's going to tell us we can find life in all sorts of ways. I want to work through a few of these, and I want to see if any of them hit home with you and resonate with you. He has sold the lie that life can be found in something called moralism. Moralism. What does that mean? That means I'm just trying to be good enough. I'm going to be a good moral person. I can justify myself through being a moral good person. But here's the problem. When you operate out of moralism, when you operate out of good works, trying to be good, who gets to decide what is good and how good is good enough? You can't do enough good. And you, you feel that. And here's what happens in moralism. Ultimately, we get stuck in this life-killing cycle of comparison that leads to arrogance that destroys our joy. Because when, when, when you're trying to do just enough good stuff and, and justify yourself by being virtuous and good, you, you, you settle into a life-killing cycle of comparison, meaning as long as you're as good as or a little better than others, morally, you're fine. Or you live a life of defeat when you look at others and go, I'll never be that good, I quit. That's moralism. Just trying to be good enough. I can be good enough. I can do enough good stuff. That is a lie from the enemy. Here's another one. He sold the lie that life can be found in hedonism. Hedonism. Now, what does that mean? That is a life lived in the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure, right? Life is about feeling good, having what I want, doing what I want, party all the time. Life is about getting as much as I can. It's about money. It's about, it's about sex. It's about success. It's about possessions. It's about power and, and popularity. It's about making sure I feel good and I am having a good time at all times. It's a life of excess, but I want you to think about the people in our culture who have all those things. Just beneath the surface, they're the most miserable people on planet earth. They're the most miserable people on planet Earth. Why? Because they do have all the money and they do have the popularity and they do have a lot of power and they have everything that the world says is going to make you happy. And when they close the door, they look themselves in the mirror and realize, but I don't have life. And there's something missing. And there's not real joy. 
He sold the lie that life can be found in moralism, being good, hedonism, doing what I want, having plenty, right? Pursuing pleasure. He's also sold a lie that life can be found in secularism. Now, what is that? Secularism is this, it's a self-determined life without religion and without God. I don't need God. I can do this on my own. Um, I'm going to be my own moral compass. I'll be my own true north. You're going to do you however you want to do it. I'm going to do me. I'm going to live life on my terms. That's secularism. I do not need God. I got it. Here's the problem. What happens when you don't have it? What happens when life brings something that your reasoning and your effort crumble beneath the weight of? Secularism, secularism falls apart against the weight of tragedy and against the weight of things that life brings. Secularism leads to massive depression. It leads to a lack of contentment. Why? Because again, what you discover is I can do and live this life however I want, but somehow I'm still lacking real life. So he tells us a lie that life can be found in moralism. I'm going to do good. Hedonism. I'm going to pursue pleasure. Secularism. I'll find my own way. I don't need God. There's one other way he sells a lie. And I think it's the most dangerous of all of these. And that is religionism. Religion. This is being devoted to a belief system as a means of salvation and a fulfilled life. This is religion is man's attempt to find life in God on our own terms, right? And, and I want you to hear me. Religion leads more people to emptiness and hell than anything else. It leads more people to emptiness and hell. Why? Because in very religious people oftentimes are just close enough to God things and church things, but never really having the relationship. But they're so, they get around religion. They belong to a religion. They do religious stuff. But when you ask them about a relationship with Jesus, there's this glazed over look because somehow for them, a life has become a list of things I do, not a person I know. Very, very religious people will spend eternity separated from God. Did you know that? Very religious people who go to church. It is possible that you can come to church and miss relationship with Jesus Christ. This, this religionism, this is what Jesus is addressing in John 9 and 10. It's what he's dealing with with the Pharisees, right? He heals this man, but because he healed this man on the Sabbath, they lose their mind. They call him a sinner. They kick this man out of the synagogue. Why? Because they're so focused on the rules of religion that they miss the joy of the miracle. They miss the joy of relationship with Christ. And God help us if we have boiled down the abundant life to a list of rules that we try to keep. And I wonder if you're buying any of those lies. Are you buying the lie of good works? I'm going to be good. I'll be a good moral person. And that'll be enough. Well, how good is good enough? Are you buying the lie of hedonism? 
I'm just going to find life by doing what, having as much as I can, enjoying this time, having money, having stuff, pleasing myself? Have you bought the lie that says, I don't need God? I don't need Him. I'll just live this however it lives and however it works out. Are you believing the lie of religion that says, if I just come do religious stuff, that's going to be enough? Now, I want you to let, now let's contrast the thief with Jesus. Every path to life apart from Jesus leads to death. Here's the next thing. But Jesus came to give us extraordinary life. Extraordinary life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says, I came. It communicates a purpose. What's the purpose? That you might have life and not just life, wake up and work through a Monday, but abundant life. Abundant. What does that word mean, abundant? It means a life that is extraordinary. It's going beyond the ordinary or the usual to be remarkable. I want you to hear me, because this is for somebody in this room. Jesus did not come, and he is not here to call you into a relationship to extract joy from your life. He has come so that you might, in relationship with him, experience the only thing that can give you real, lasting joy. That's why he came. See the contrast. The thief comes to destroy. Jesus comes to give life. And I think so often in our culture, following Jesus... Being a Christian is viewed as, as having to give up all the things we really like and all the things that make life fun and good and enjoyable. Now listen, it is true that in coming to Jesus, we must repent of trying to live life on our own terms. We have to repent of things like trying to be good enough, trying to pursue pleasure, trying to live without God, trying to live by a, a checklist of do's and don'ts. We have to repent from life on our own. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't hide that stuff in the small print? He said in Matthew 16, you want to be my disciple? Here's what it means. Deny yourself. What does that mean? It means you deny living life on your terms. Then he says you take up a cross. What does that mean? You die to that person. You die to the person that says, I'm going to live the way I want to live. And you follow him. Deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. And how, why do we do that? Because what we receive in following Jesus is far greater than anything we will ever walk away from in this life. What I want every heart in the room to hear this. What you receive in following Jesus is far greater than anything you will ever walk away from in this world to follow him. Jesus is greater. He's greater. But following him requires that we live every we leave everything behind that we once lived for because we've 
found something better. What did the disciples do? They found life in Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. What did they do? They left their boat right there. They left their nets right there. They left their other co-workers with their eyes bug-eyed open and their mouth going, where are you guys going? Well, we're with him now. We're going to leave all this, everything. Everything I trusted for security, I'm leaving it because I trust him now. That's what the disciples did. Think about the parables that Jesus told about the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field. He talks about when they found the pearl and when they found the treasure, the person who found it went and sold everything they had so that they could come and buy the field. Why? Because the treasure was so much greater than anything they had or would ever have. And how can this be true? How can it be true that Jesus really is better? How can it be true that finding life in him will satisfy us more deeply and more more securely and more eternally than anything else in this world? It is true for this reason, because you were created for life in Christ. And you are called to life in Christ. You were created for life in Jesus. And you are called to life in Jesus. We're created to know him. We're created to belong to him, to be in a relationship with him. And sin destroyed that relationship. And from that moment in the garden till today, till this morning, till five minutes ago, humanity has been trying to fill the void in our soul with anything and everything. And we keep trying because it's going to require that much effort because nothing can satisfy us. Because we weren't created to be satisfied with anything that this world can give. You were not created to find satisfaction in this world. You were created to find it in Jesus. And it is why you can have everything and have nothing. And I know there are some hearts in this room right now, and that is hitting you like a hammer. Because you feel something deeply undone inside you. You were created for relationship and life in Jesus. And listen, you are called to this. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this created purpose and this calling is why you can have everything in the world and still have no real joy and no real hope, and no real sense of peace, and no real power in your life. This world was never meant to satisfy you. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Think about that for a moment. If you find yourself in this life striving to have just a little bit more because a little bit more is going to make it right. If you find yourself in this life thinking, if I get a little more saved up and we get retirement the way we want it, we're going to be just fine. Do you find yourself striving to go, if our kids are successful, we're going to be fine. And all of a sudden, you begin to get those things. You get the job. You get the promotion. You get the ride. You get the house. You get the, you get the money. You get the kids that are killing it. You get all those things. And all of a sudden, you go, why don't I feel different? Because if you find yourself with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is you weren't made for this world. 
You were made for life in Jesus. He goes on to describe this condition of us constantly pursuing other things to find life. Listen to what he says. C.S. Lewis says, We are like half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This is what we were created for. Abundant life. Fulfilling life. And if you're a Christian, don't you want to grow in your understanding and your rest in the abundant life? And if you aren't a believer, are you tired of striving to be good enough? Are you sick of trying to find life on your own? There is life in Jesus Christ. And it's why he's called you. It is why he's created you. Relationship with Jesus. A gospel relationship with Jesus. Listen. It's not letting go of all kinds of great things and settling for Jesus. It's letting go of all the lesser things that we're never going to satisfy in the first place so that we can take up life with Jesus. God, help us think rightly about life. Help us. Help us see the emptiness and the fleeting pleasures of what this world has to offer. Help us see life the way you describe it. Listen, there is no real lasting life for humanity apart from relationship with Jesus. There's no, there's no life apart from relationship with Jesus. Jesus tells us what life is. In John 17, 3, he says, and this is eternal life. Wow, that's a powerful way to start a sentence. <laughs> Here it is, ready? This is eternal life. This is what it's all about. Eternity swings on the hinge of his next words. Here is eternal life. Here's what it means to live forever. Here's what it means to live with God. Here's what it means to have eternity with him and not eternity in hell. Here it is, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's it. That's it. Eternity swings on the hinge, not of did I do good, did I have enough, was I a good husband, did I raise my kids? It swings on the hinge of this, did I know God and did I know Jesus? Not did I know about him. Eternity is filled with people, or hell is filled with people who are gonna know a lot about Jesus. That's that religion. Religion gets you just close enough to know a lot and just far enough away to miss the relationship. You weren't created for religion, you were created for relationship. To know God, to know Him. My wife knows me, right? Carrie Darby knows what I'm thinking. It drives me crazy. 
don't know if she's a mind reader. Not a, she knows what I'm thinking. She knows what I'm going to say before I say it. She knows how I'm going to react to situations. When I walk into a room, she'll say, hey, come here, just a minute, knucklehead. You're about to see some stuff that's going to frustrate you. I want you to calm down already. She just knows. She sees it coming, right? She knows me. <laughs> Why does she know me? Because I'm in a relationship with her. And I know her. We know one another. And this is life. This is why Jesus came. That you would know him. And be known by him. And in knowing him to find life in him. Jesus laid down his life for us. And as a result, we get abundant life. And this is where the human heart, every human heart, every heart in this room finds its greatest joy is in fulfilling your created purpose of relationship with Jesus. And how did Jesus give us life? John 10, 11, the very next verse. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus offers you abundant life by laying down his life. He went to the cross for you. He paid the price for your sin. That sin that was meant to destroy you and is leading even now to your destruction. Jesus took that destruction upon himself. He became that sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake, God made him to be sin, to be death, to be everything that separates us from God so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Finding life he became your destruction. Isaiah prophesied this hundreds of years before it happened. In Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ, hundreds of years before Christ was born, he said, surely he's going to take up our infirmities. He's going to carry our sorrows. And we're going to look at him. We're going to consider him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And by the punishment that is bringing us peace, we're going to be healed. His back is going to be striped. And every one of those stripes is the healing of the disease of sin in my life. Do you know him? Do you know him? Don't let eternity swing on the hinge of I came to church. My mom and daddy were believers. My grandmother was a believer. I was a good neighbor. I was a good husband and wife. Do you know Jesus? And Jesus says one of the most beautiful things a few verses after John 10 and 11, when he, or John 10, 10 and 11, when he gets to verse 17 and 18. He wants to make very clear about the authority he has to lay down his life and take it up again. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Why is that so important for you? Because the cross was not the victory of Satan. It was the surrender and obedience of Jesus. It wasn't death, the devil winning. It was the kingdom of God coming down to rescue you from your sin and to give you relationship. 
Jesus said, I'm going to lay my life down. And then I'm going to take it back up again. Because I'm going to defeat the very thing that is killing my people. Sin and death. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? For some of you this morning, you are at the threshold. And it is time for you to punt out of your life every lie that says, I'll just keep trying to be good and hope it's enough. It is time for you to punt out of your life the lie that says, I come to church, I go to life group, I even give a little money every now and then. Surely that's enough. It is time for you to punt that lie out of your mind. And for some of you, it is time to step across the threshold and go, I'm done of doing this on my own. I can't find God on my own terms. I can't have peace on my own terms. I can't have joy in life on my own terms. And it is time for you to know Jesus, to know him. Do you want abundant life? Do you want abundant life? I'm asking everybody just to bow with me for a moment. And I want to ask you, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Has there been a moment where you have denied yourself and you have taken up your cross and you have begun to live a life following him? Because if that moment hasn't come, God's word says you are bound for eternity separated from God. For some of you this morning, it is time for you to look at the cross and receive the free gift of salvation. Matt, how do I do that? It's this simple. Right now, where you are, in this seat, right now, if you don't know that you belong to Jesus and you don't know that you really know him, it's as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to know. I'm tired of living life on my own. I'm tired of trying to please God on my own. I need you. I need salvation. I need abundant life. Save me. Save me. If you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, and you've come to the end of your doing this in your own effort, and you have decided today, I want abundant life in Jesus, and you prayed that prayer, I want you to be very courageous. Very courageous. And I want you to look up and just stand up and look at me right now. Nobody's looking around. It's just us. If you prayed that prayer, stand up and look at me real quick. I know you're in the room. Just stand up and look at me. I've received abundant life today. I need Jesus. I need to make him the Lord of my life. If you prayed that prayer right where you are, just stand up and look at me. Everybody in this room has said is I am supremely confident that when I walk out that door, no matter what happens to me, I will spend eternity with God. It's not a question mark for me. It's, it's an exclamation point because I can point to a moment where I made Jesus my Lord and he changed my life. I can point to it. If that's you and, and you know you can do that, my next question is this. Are you living the abundant life? 
Are you living the abundant life? Or would you have to be honest and say, the truth is I have fallen back into believing I just got to be good enough. And God, the better I am, the happier God is with me. I've, I've fallen back into some of that. I'm falling back into thinking my own security is based on how much I have and my satisfaction is based on what I get and how much I've kind of fallen back away into thinking I can provide abundant life. So maybe this morning here in a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to start singing. The second we do, maybe for you, you need to come to this altar and just hit your knees and go, God, I repent of trying to find life apart from you. Remind me that life is only found in you. We're going to have some of our, our team up here. And when we stand and when we start singing, and for whatever reason, a moment ago, you didn't stand up. You just, you just, just couldn't, you couldn't get up. But you know you need Jesus and you're tired of trying to find life on your own. And for the next few minutes, we're going to worship and we're going to sing and everybody's going to be standing. I just want you to step out the aisle and come grab one of us and say, I need a relationship with Jesus. Father, I thank you and I love you and I pray that for the next few minutes, Holy Spirit, that you would bring uh, your presence and salvation and power into our room. We need you. We ask you to move in Jesus' name.